we turn our attention now to the reading and proclamation of God's word, let us bow for a word of prayer. Gracious God, root us in your word this morning, that being anchored in the firm foundation of Christ, we might be equipped to live our lives more joyfully and faithfully. So speak to us, Lord, for your people are listening. These prayers we make in the name of Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. The lectionary text this morning begin in Psalm 1. I invite you now to listen for God's Word to you. Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path that sinners tread, or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. In all they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And our New Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 13 through 17 and 21 to 26. We pick up the narrative immediately following last week's reading that detailed Christ's ascension. Listen once again for the word of the Lord. When they had entered the city, they went to a room upstairs where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. In those days... Peter stood up among the believers. Together the crowd numbered about 120 persons. And Peter said, Friends, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit, through David, foretold, concerning Judas, who became a guide for those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share of this ministry. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. So they proposed two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed and said, Lord... You know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So upon returning to Jerusalem from the Mount of the Ascension, 
the disciples have been rebranded. They are now called apostles. An apostle is someone who has been sent with a commission. And so the disciples have gone from being disciples who follow Jesus to being apostles who have been sent by Jesus as his witnesses. This is why the full title of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. And their first act as apostles is to make an important decision. Who would replace Judas Iscariot among their company? After all, you can't have 11 apostles, right? 12 is a much better number, far more biblical, the number Jesus himself had chosen. But now that Jesus had ascended and is no longer with them in the flesh to appoint someone to replace Judas, the task fell to the remaining apostles to discern who the ascended Christ was calling to join them. The apostles go about discerning their next colleague carefully and intentionally. They devote themselves to prayer. They meet together often. They narrow down their options and they shorten their list down to the two best candidates, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they ask God to show them who was best equipped to join them in their apostolic commission of proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They pray, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen. And then it's time to make a decision. And since apparently God didn't speak with a loud, audible voice from heaven telling them exactly what they ought to do, they decide to cast lots. And the lot falls to Matthias, and he joins their company. What we observe throughout this scene is what we might call today a discernment process. The apostles are faced with a major decision, which they must make without an obvious answer. Their decision requires prayer, diligence, collaboration, And finally, decisiveness. Of course, we face these kind of decisions, too, from time to time as well. We must decide where to go to college, whether and whom to marry, whether to switch jobs, when to retire, and so on. Major decisions are daunting, especially when there are multiple good options, or I suppose multiple bad ones. So this morning, I'd like us to consider three discernment principles that we can observe from this text in Acts, which can help us navigate the most formidable decisions that we face in our lives when we seek to discern God's will for us. So the first discernment principle that we can observe in this text is this. Make the practical spiritual. Make the practical spiritual. Sometimes we think that since discerning God's will is such an important task, we must have to do mystical and transcendent things in order to tap into the hidden mind of God. Such decisions must need to take place while watching a sunrise or summiting a mountain, we might think. As if discernment has to be a total break from our everyday routines and practices. While it's certainly useful to clear one's head and focus one's mind when thinking about important things, even mundane, everyday things can be spiritual. God can speak through a pros and cons list. God can speak through the practicality of facts and figures. Now, of course, God should not be constrained by ordinary things, but neither should God only be assumed to transcend ordinary things. 
The apostles do lots of spiritual stuff in our text today, certainly. They pray devoutly, they meet together frequently, and that work helps them narrow down their options to two final candidates for apostle. But then they cast lots in order to choose between Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. That method seems about as arbitrary as choosing Matthias because he had a much simpler name. You see, casting lots was hardly a religious experience. It was like rolling dice or flipping a coin. What could seem less spiritual than that, right? But here and throughout the Bible, casting lots was used to discern God's will. Proverbs 16.33 puts it like this, The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is the Lord's alone. I'm not suggesting we reestablish the practice of casting lots. And rolling dice is probably not a good way to make a decision either. But the mundane, ordinary nature of this practice is what is still instructive for us today. When faced with a decision, we should gather helpful opinions from family and friends, analyze whatever data we can to make an informed decision. We should draw out the X's and O's that give us a bird's eye view of the variables involved in our decision. The point is this. God can use everyday techniques to make God's will known to us. Don't neglect the sensible and the mundane in your discernment just because it doesn't seem spiritual enough. By all means, do the spiritual work that gets us centered on God's presence. Say your prayers, but you can also make the mundane spiritual by submitting it to God in prayer as well. Have you ever prayed through a pros and cons list, for instance? The first principle of discernment, make the practical spiritual. The second principle of discernment is this, trust God enough to act decisively. Trust God enough to act decisively. When a decision is hard and there's no clear way to go, we may find ourselves paralyzed and hesitant to make a decision. We may want to keep our options open as long as possible in case we make the wrong decision and can backtrack. As the discernment process we observe in Acts reaches its conclusion, though, the group commits to Matthias as the twelfth apostle. The decision isn't rushed or made suddenly. Plenty of prayers are rightly said and the right people are consulted. But then a decision has to be made. Due diligence is done. And then they commit to Matthias. The newest apostle isn't given a trial or probation period. He doesn't come with a 90-day return policy. The best evangelists you've ever met are your money back. No, the text simply says Matthias was added to the 11 apostles. Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also known as Justice, wasn't given the runaround and kept waiting to see if Matthias would work out or not. They chose Matthias, and their ministry proceeds on the assumption that Christ's call on his life will be sufficient for the task for which he has been chosen. And we hear nothing else about Matthias in the rest of the book of Acts. They, the author doesn't go out of his way to recount Matthias's miracles to prove that the decision was the right one. It's simply left here that Matthias joined the 11 apostles when the lot fell to him. You know, sometimes we are just as undecided after we make a decision as we are during the period in which we're discerning what decision to make. A few years ago, I often visited a woman who was 
recovering from a fall and trying to decide if it was finally time to move to a retirement community. She valued her independence and had lived in her house for 50-some years, but she was often lonely and she knew her parents worried about her, her children worried about her, but with all those steps up to her front door. And after a lot of prayer and conversation, she finally decided to move to a retirement community. Kind of. You see, she only partially made that decision. She kept her house and didn't want to move anything out of it, much less sell it. Every day she held on to the hope that she would eventually be able to return home. Her sitter would even drive her to her house during the day so that she could paint in her own studio there. And whenever I visited her in that retirement community, she was unhappy. She didn't like the food. She didn't like having to sign out. She didn't like the bed, it wasn't comfortable, and so on. It was only a couple years later when she finally sold her house and most of her stuff that she began to adapt to life in her new community. She was finally living into the decision, fully embracing it, trying to get stronger, not so she could go home somewhere else, but so that she could go on more of the outings that were now available to her. She ate in the dining room and went to the monthly birthday parties for the residents and was fully engaged in where she was. You see, it was only when she stopped trying to go home somewhere else that she started making a home where she was. It wasn't until she had fully committed to her decision to move that she was able to realize that she'd made a good choice. When we make a major decision, we almost never know what exactly it will mean for our future, right? That's why we spend so much time thinking and praying about it. Sometimes we have to take a leap of faith. And when we do, it's best not to look back over our shoulder. It's best to trust that the prayerful process we've undertaken will bear fruit in God's time. Now, sometimes, of course, we don't make the right decision, right? Sometimes we make a decision, we give it everything we've got, and we realize we've made a mistake. But thankfully, we have a God of grace, a God who does not abandon us when we struggle to find our way. God's grace is always sufficient to guide us back on the path if we wander astray. All the more reason then to commit to our decisions when we know that we've made our decision prayerfully and faithfully. If things go wrong, God will be there to guide us back to the way we should go, and we will not be outside of God's grace So the second discernment principle we observe in this text, trust God enough to act decisively. And the third and final principle is this, don't assume that God's will is binary. Don't assume that there's only one right decision, and therefore all the other decisions you might make are wrong. Usually if the good and the bad are that obvious, it's not discernment that we need, but faithfulness, and courage to do what we know to be right. But more often than not, decisions are hard because we can see potential positive and negative outcomes from multiple choices. Consider the case of these two candidates for apostleship. So far as we can tell from the text, both Justice and Matthias are qualified candidates. As Peter puts it, They accompanied us during all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us. In other words, they've both been here the whole time. Either one of them could have served well as an apostle, 
A lousy candidate had already been weeded out through their prayers and the data analysis of their resumes, I'm sure. In the end, this decision literally comes down to rolling the dice. Now, while the text does affirm that it was in fact Christ who chose Matthias, it also suggests that either one of these two finalists would have made a great apostle. If the apostles in Acts had assumed that the election of Judas's replacement was a binary decision, they would have had to assume that only one of the two was a good choice, and the other one, therefore, must be a bad choice. One decision would be doing God's will, the other decision would be sinning against God's will. But when it comes to decisions that have some degree of ambiguity, maybe the practice of being faithful to God's will is less about which decision we make and more about seeking to honor God no matter what decision we make. Maybe God's will isn't always do this and not that, but rather whatever it is you do, bear witness to me in your doing it. Consider a person trying to decide between two jobs. She's qualified for both. She has experience in both, but they're in two different cities and so have different pros and cons for her family. If she assumes that God wants her to take one job and not the other, if she assumes that only one choice is the faithful choice, well, now there's a ton of pressure weighing down this decision that isn't obvious. But if she follows a discernment process... If she consults with her family, crunches the numbers, prays about each opportunity, and an obvious decision still doesn't emerge, surely God will be pleased with her whichever job she takes. Because no matter what job she accepts, so long as she honors God throughout her career, either decision can ultimately prove to be the right decision. Either decision can ultimately prove to align with God's will. You see, all decisions are not binary choices. When there are multiple options of ways in which we can be faithful to God, any decision can fall in line with God's will for our lives so long as we live out our faith in whatever we decide to do. For the scripture says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The third principle of discernment is this, don't assume that God's will is always binary. So friends, when you're faced with a difficult decision, follow the lead of these apostles in your discernment process. Make the practical spiritual. Trust God enough to act decisively. Don't assume God's will is always binary. With prayer and the guidance of God's spirit, our lives will align with God's will. And God's will will be realized in the decisions that we make. Alleluia and thanks be to God. Amen.